Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vaughn. You can find my weekly columns at the Conservative Institute or get my Friday newsletter in your email inbox each week by signing up at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. If you were there this past week, you could have read my pieces about Dave Chappelle's new stand-up special and how it fits in with Jon Stewart's coverage of the news throughout the years. I also wrote about the case for breaking up big tech using antitrust laws. And finally, in the Friday newsletter, you could have read about techno-eugenics and an interview with a scientist who is covers eugenics, biology, and how all that intertwines throughout history. This podcast is powered by Podcast One, who advertises on the front end as well as during the breaks. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me. The contact information for that, as well as sign-up links for everything I've mentioned so far, can be found in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, which is new this week, Spotify, Overcast, and others. If any of them use iTunes or any of the others as part of the way they build their directories, I'm probably on there at this point. Five-star reviews help us stand out in the podcast algorithms and help others find us. Your support is the lifeblood of podcasts like this one, and I thank you for your support. This week, I'm covering the Democratic debate. It was the official one for this month that took place, as well as Hurricane Dorian and why the U.S. needs to step in and help rebuild the Bahamas, not just as, as part of our humanitarian efforts, but also as a part of keeping China out of our own backyard. And finally, I'll wrap up looking at Brexit this week. But before we get to that, I wanted to cover two quick things. One was a listener question that I got, and Sarah asked about a story that came up. A reporter tweeted out the law that is um, available that it makes it against the law for a person to publish, knowingly publish, a false weather report. And the reporter was connecting this to the nonstop story, the one that wouldn't go away, about Donald Trump and the Sharpie, where he drew an extra part of the bubble on the hurricane coverage for Dorian to say that it went, it was at some point the track for the hurricane, it was going to hit Alabama. This was a pretty nonsensical news cycle if there ever was one. But the question was, if this law is applicable, would it apply to the president in this case? And I don't believe that it would. And that's primarily because the law that governs weather forecasts like that is trying to prevent people from putting out false forecasts in the moment. So when the National Hurricane Center is putting out their tracks and you're looking at the cone, what they don't want is somebody else creating their own cone and putting it out that's showing the hurricane going somewhere else and showing that as the official thing that the National Weather Service is saying. They want Because these hurricanes are huge and can cause a lot of damage, they don't want people acting or not reacting, um, depending on which may be more important, to a false weather forecast. What Trump did in this case by drawing the Sharpie was well after the fact. Yes, he knew that it was wrong, or I, I have no idea what was going through his mindset, but it wasn't a weather forecast that was put out to show people what to do. He was arguing about the past, trying to prove that one of his tweets was accurate. 
So that's why the law, I don't believe, would apply in this case, because it wouldn't fall under a weather forecast. So that's a good question. And the second thing I wanted to hit real quick, because I don't want to write a column about this, it was just irritating. It's one of those memes you see when you're on social media. Um, somebody posted a meme of a parent standing in front of a millennial, and the parent was, had this whiteboard up that said, you took out a loan, now pay it back. Meaning that in all these student debt, and it, when, when it had the student loan crisis in, quote, in quotation marks, implying that there is no crisis there, that it's all the problem. It's, it's the only fault of the people who took out the loans. And granted, people who went to college and took out these loans, they decided to do that. But a lot of this was built by people like these boomers who built the college path and directed everyone down it and said the only way that you're going to succeed in life is to take out these loans. And the other weird thing about this, because what it also gets to is that is this personal responsibility angle, which as a conservative I'm normally I would agree with, and I do in this case. You should take personal responsibility for your own actions. But what comes up in these types of memes that's not mentioned are things like Social Security or Medicare. I remember quite vividly when George W. Bush was president, he talked about privatizing Social Security in order to help it last longer. The New York Times reported recently that Social Security is coming up and on bankruptcy. It's, it's running out of money. They're going to either have to raise taxes or come up with something else. Well, in around 2005, when George W. Bush proposed that we privatize Social Security, there was a massive uproar from everyone who had these retirement accounts and was depending on Social Security. You didn't hear anybody talking about personal responsibility then. It was only about saving their entitlement program. The same goes with Medicare. Everybody was really happy when Medicare got expanded to include Medicare Part D, that covered prescription drugs. Again, it's another form of an entitlement. And so when we're looking at the crisis of how to fund this, there's I have sort of the same feeling about that as I do about these student loan things. There's a similar thing there. It's, it's both an entitlement, but to go to college, as it is to get health care and these other things, we've built these things up. We're eventually going to have to figure out how to fund them and to get people back on their footing. And memes like that, they just hide the ball. They're bad, and there's not a lot of personal responsibility that people want to show. They like their entitlements. They like going to college. They like Social Security. And so just saying, oh, well, you didn't show personal responsibility. You just took out a loan. It's your fault. Well, that's like saying if you depend on Social Security, you didn't. why should we give that to you? You didn't take out the personal responsibility for saving for retirement. So it's just a dumb meme, and they get annoying if you see them over and over again on things like Facebook. And I wanted to hit that real quick before we dive in to the first story this week, which is the Democratic debate. Conventional wisdom coming out of the Democratic debate was that this is Elizabeth Warren's moment, and that Joe Biden had another rough night. She hit it out of the park. He's slow. He's hitting slower, and he's we're just waiting for poor old Joe Biden to eventually implode. And so 538 did some before and after 
polling to see how people reacted towards each one of the candidates before the debate and after the debate. There haven't been any new official polling that you that the Democrats are using to measure who will be in the next debates yet. So we don't have any official numbers on how everyone's faring in the aftermath of this third round of debates. But what 538 found, just looking at how people thought about, looking at their favorability and what they thought of each candidate, is that there's a, some slight truth to the conventional wisdom in this case. The person who benefited the most from this third round of being on the main stage with all the big names was Elizabeth Warren. In the prior previous two debates, Warren was relegated to the junior debate. She was there with all the other lesser unknowns while Biden, Harris, and some of the other big names were on the main stage and got all the limelight. So this was Warren's chance to stand out. And before the debate, 538 registered her at 44.4% favorability. Afterwards, that rose to 48%, so about a 4% increase. And she was the big winner of the night on that front. Everybody else had small increases for the most part or small to no uh, movement at all. Biden, his numbers decreased 0.2%, so basically no movement at all. And he's still leading in favorability among all of the uh, candidates in the field. Warren's catching up to him, but he's still leading pretty strongly. The biggest loser of the night, though, that... It's amazing to watch this happen in real time as Kamala Harris. If you remember, after the first debate, Kamala Harris came out swinging at Biden. She popped up in the polls. She was sitting there close to in second or third place nationally. She was driving ahead and getting close in Iowa. But then nothing happened. Her campaign wasn't able to answer the charges that people brought up to her. Once the light started focusing on her, she wasn't able to defend herself. And ever since then, ever since that pop she got after that first debate, she's just slowly slid back down the list. So right now, she's probably fighting to stay alive in this race at all. Uh, Conventional Wisdom at one point said she was probably the best candidate on paper, but since she's actually had to run, what we've learned is that she can't defend her own positions. In that second debate, she was absolutely obliterated by multiple multiple people in that debate, and she couldn't defend a single position that she previously held as a district attorney in California. Now, that's astounding. As a district attorney, she had all these policies that she was putting forth, and some of them are not kosher with the modern Democratic Party. And now, she can't defend them, and so she's flip-flopping on every last single issue. Healthcare was key among these. When she's been asked whether or not she supports Medicare for All, someday she supports it full on. She sponsored the bill in the Senate, and then someday she doesn't support it at all. She's been all over the place, and when she was asked about it during the third debate, her answer was absolutely nonsensical. It didn't make any sense at all. And that's important because the most important issue to Democrats right now, and this was true in 2018 during the midterms, is health care. The thing they're voting on, and they're voting on two issues, Donald Trump and health care. Everything else is a very distant second place. And so if you have, you have to have, in the Democratic primaries, a comprehensive health care plan that you believe in and that you can defend every last single part of it. And Kamala Harris can't do that. 
there was a stark difference between the fight that, say, Joe Biden had with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Biden had took an interesting tack early on in the debate where he didn't directly attack Warren. What he did was he attacked Bernie's plan and said that Bernie's plan was clearer and made more sense than Warren's plan. Bernie's been very upfront about his health care plan that in order to pay for it, he'll have to raise taxes, not just on the rich, because there's not enough money to pay for Medicare for All only by soaking the rich in taxes. You have to raise taxes on the middle class and probably even further. And Bernie Sanders has come out now and said that he understands that he'll have to do that in order to gather enough funds to do exactly that. So what Joe Biden did was he took that answer and pivoted it and said, Bernie's been honest about this. Warren has not. And so what he got the moderators to do by doing that was for, was get them to ask her two questions. The first was whether or not her plan would kick peop- about 140 to 160 million people off their private health insurance and plans. That's the first one. And the second one has to deal with how she's going to pay for her health care plan. For the, the moment, all she's really done is said she's, is she's going to have a wealth tax. That's incredibly vague, and it will not bring in enough money, no matter how you draw it up, to pay for this plan. So what Biden did was say, Bernie's honest about this, is Warren is not. And when she was forced to answer that question, Warren dodged. She refused to answer it. She was asked three or four times and refused to give a direct answer on this. And so she knows in order to win these suburban voters in these districts that she needs to carry, in order to win these people who don't want to vote for Bernie and they're looking at Biden, but they're still progressive, she knows she can't say, we're going to tell you the only way to do this is to tax the middle class. If she says that, she apparently believes it'll sink her campaign. Now, I don't know if it'll sink her campaign in the primaries, but I can absolutely guarantee you it will sink her campaign in the general election because Republicans will be able to say two things definitively because they'll have all these Democrats on record saying the same thing. One, that they're going to eliminate 140 to 160 million people off their health insurance plans. And remember, there's only about 320 million people in the United States. That's about half the people they're going to lose. And all these are going to be people. So if you have a employer, employer-sponsored health care insurance plan, everything's through your employer, you immediately lose that and you immediately go on Medicare for All. That is your new plan. So whatever you have now, you can kiss it goodbye because it's not coming back and you're immediately on Medicare. So that's the first thing that would happen. And then the second thing that would happen is that they would immediately have to raise taxes. Now, some of this gets, depending on whose plan it is, this would be phased in. In Bernie's plan, I believe it's about four years. And some of the others, like one a version done by Kamala Harris, hers was over the course of 10 years. But the result is still the same. You're going to have to raise taxes, and you're going to kick people off their plans. So they're going to lose all their plans, and they've got higher taxes just to get Medicare for all. When you poll this against just general people, it is hated, absolutely hated. Republicans tried to use an argument like this during the Obamacare debates, and it didn't really work because 
that didn't really happen. People lost their coverage in certain cases, but it wasn't to the extent that you would absolutely see under Medicare for All, because that's literally in the text of Medicare for All. You're kicking these people off their plans and sticking them on Medicare. That's it. There's nothing else. It, there wouldn't be any fact check to this where they could say, oh, you know, some people would keep it. There, there wouldn't be any of that. Everybody gets kicked off and put on the government-sponsored plan. So healthcare is the most important thing. And while Warren is gaining ground, no doubt, and her favorability is up because people see her as the happy warrior, she's struggling right here to give a straight answer on healthcare. And I wonder how much that's going to end up hurting her in some of these primaries. It may... If she makes it through, it may not hurt her in the primaries, but it will absolutely hurt her in a general election. Because what Biden is trying to do is tie her and Bernie Sanders together and make them one person. And you can view this as good or bad. On the good side, it makes her seem more extreme and that she's a radical out here who would change health care for everything. On the other hand, the bad part of that is that it could make Elizabeth Warren voters more likely to side with Bernie Sanders. So she... F- her campaign ends up failing, it could give him a stronger base of support. And if it comes down to just a one or two person race, that could give Bernie more support than he otherwise would have because he's been mainstreamed by somebody like Elizabeth Warren. So there's all kinds of interplay there. Uh, in the newsletter, I brought up Sean Trende's piece in Real Clear Politics. He made a point that we could be headed towards a contested convention. Because if your top three vote-getters are Biden, Warren, and Sanders, there's a good chance that none of them will be able to pull out a majority of the delegates and that we could end up at convention time without a clear winner and end up with a, a uh, brokered convention where people are going to end up in smoke-filled rooms trying to figure out who's going to be the Democratic nominee. I don't know if that'll happen. But the way Democrats changed the rules after 2016 to accommodate Bernie Sanders, I think this was a really dumb idea. The way they did that, there's fewer winners-take-all states and more wherever you end up in the polls at the end, that's how many of the delegates you, you get. So the first state in Iowa, you may win Iowa with 30% of the vote, but even though you win, you're only getting 30% of the overall delegates. So you can't get all of them. Republicans have a lot more winner-take-all. So when Trump started gaining momentum, one of the ways he gained that momentum was that he would hit these winner-take-all states, win all the delegates, and that was it. When people are winning some delegates, they have some standing at the convention. But without that, there's, there's, no, there's just no room. So you want to watch this dynamic and see how the Democrats end up splitting and what candidates they end up supporting. So, if those are your top three, uh, the everyone after that is almost an afterthought. Kamala Harris is probably your closest fourth, second-tier candidate. She was in the top tier. She's got probably the most talent, and she's the best on paper. But until she learns to defend her positions, she's dead in the water. And this third debate was so bad that CNBC reported that her her um, big donors were beginning to get worried. Most of her donor support is coming from California, 
and they're looking at her flailing in these poles and continue to drop and wondering why they're throwing more money after her. So if she doesn't pop and after this third debate, and they'll all look at the polls, and I doubt that she will because she took a beating, she and Julian Castro took the worst hits in favorability, her because she was just bad throughout the entire night, and he because he attacked Biden for sounding like he was old and couldn't remember things, and no one liked that. It was just a bad attack all around. So those two lost ground in 538's just quick snapshot of before and after reactions of the debate. So if she doesn't, she's going to quickly run out of money, and it's going to be a question of whether or not she can even get up enough money to make it to the next round of debates. She might be able to hang around in the polls to make it, but I don't know that she'll have the cash on hand to continue campaigning, because right now I don't know that she has enough to make it to Iowa at this point. So she's running out of rope, and she's got to figure out a way. And her plan was similar to a lot of people that night, and that was to get as close as they could and hug the legacy of Obama as much as they could. And there was a reason for that. They also saw an opening because earlier in the day, Political Magazine, the day of the debate, published a story, and it was a story that was sourced almost solely with former Obama administration officials, and they were all incredibly angry at Elizabeth Warren and some of the other progressives in this race who have spent their time in this campaign blasting the Obama legacy. This is something a lot of election watchers have found very strange to watch in the Democratic primaries. Obama remains an incredibly popular former president. People love him. Democrats really love him. And what everyone's seen is that during these debates, people are backing away. So on things like immigration, they don't want to support what Obama did on immigration. On health care, they're all moving to Medicare for all instead of trying to build on Obamacare. Joe Biden is really the only one who's still standing strong and trying to defend the Obamacare record. And so... The Obama campaign officials just came out and gunning at some of these people. And so what that changed in the dynamic is everyone during the debate started their answers with, oh, thank you for what you did, President Obama. We want to build on what you did. So now they're all trying to kiss up and make up for all this time that they've been shunning a popular former president. This isn't the same dynamic that you saw after 2008 with George W. Bush when he was radioactive to any Republican. Obama helps any Democrat that he's willing to endorse in their races. In 2018, he sent out a long list of endorsements across a long, uh, just a swath of progressive candidates across the country, and they all got to tout that they got the Obama endorsement. He hasn't endorsed anybody in the in the primaries yet, and they're all going to need it. Whoever the eventual nominee is, they're going to need it. But if they're going to spend all this time attacking his legacy, it's going to make them harder to come back in the end and say, hey, I know I've been attacking you, but could you give me an endorsement? They all want that, but they're going to Obama's not going to let them him attack him. He's sending his people out talking to these reporters and saying, hey, we need these guys to clean up their act. 
We need them to say that they're going to defend my legacy. Joe Biden's the only one outright doing that. Everyone else, not really, not so much. So along with Obama, the other dynamic to watch is Bernie Sanders, I think. He's not going to win the primaries. They've effectively stacked all their infrastructure against ensuring that he won't win. But what he can do is pile up delegates. And in a, in a wide field with a lot of people, a person who can maintain about 15% in each and every one of these primaries is going to end up piling up delegates. So if it ends up being a close convention, Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama could be fighting over who decides is the next nominee, presidential nominee in the Democratic Party. So we could be seeing not just a potential broker convention, but an outright fight between the Obamas and the Sanders and his wing of the party over who controls the future of the Democratic Party. So there's all kinds of different storylines through here, and they're going to keep getting ramped up, and the the lines are going to keep getting drawn. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have this... It makes sense that they have this, but it's a non-aggression pact that they apparently signed sometime about six months ago where they wouldn't attack each other. Uh, it reminds me of the one that Ted Cruz tried to have with Donald Trump early on in the primaries, and that can hold for a little while. But eventually, there's only going to be one person that wins. So a non-aggression pact can't last forever. If you want that person's votes, you're going to have to go after their voters. And the general way to do that is to attack. And I understand that attacking one may not help you, but you have to figure out how to build that build that dynamic that shows the difference between you and the other person. None of that's available right now, but it's going to start coming to a head as soon as we start voting. So keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on how Obama starts walking in. And when we come back from the break, we'll cover Hurricane Dorian. What I wanted to cover next is Hurricane Dorian and how it hit the Bahamas. I was watching some YouTube footage from iCyclone over the weekend, and a guy decided to ride out the bulk of the storm in Marsh Harbor, one of the hardest-hit areas of the, of the Bahamas. And in his video, they started out, they were up high. They were up on higher ground, so the storm surge wasn't a huge concern for them. You had to go a little bit closer to shore to the shoreline before it really kicked in because they were on a hill. But what did hit them was the wind, and it was wind unlike anything I'd ever seen. He was looking out of a window. They had put plywood across all the windows, and the storm sucked all that plywood off. And so he was looking through one of the windows as the wind was howling around him. And you could just tell as this storm was getting stronger and stronger and the pressure was dropping, people were rubbing their ears as they were walking around in this building because the pressure was dropping so fast that they could feel it in their heads. And when the wind really kicked up to its most intense, he was looking out the window with his phone There was a bush right in front of it, and you couldn't see anything three feet past him. It was all white out from wind and rain. And the wind was so strong that in the parking lot, it was picking up these heavy vehicles and sucking them up a little bit, kind of like how you would see in a tornado 
how it could have that suction action. And it was tossing these cars, and it was throwing debris at things so hard that it looked like some of these cars had been through a war zone. So the power of this hurricane really can't be understated. It was an incredibly strong Category 5 storm. A couple of the meteorologists that I follow said that if you went up to a Category 6, this storm would have come close to crossing over that line. They stopped the the scale at a Category 5, and it's just anything above that continues to be a 5. But if you took those categories and can't even the same the them advance them the same way they are in the others, this would have been a category six. It was an incredibly strong storm and the Iowa part of it especially was incredibly strong. And it just wiped out everything in its path. Current statistics of this storm said that there's seventy thousand people still actively in need of supplies. And the scary thing about it is because it wiped out so much of the infrastructure there is that there's still a ton of people missing. The official death toll in the Bahamas has been at 50 people, which is a lot, but it's been that way for a week, and everyone knows that that number is wrong. There's, they've been able, they whittled down their missing list from around 2,500 down to 1,300 now. But when you go through some of these neighborhoods, there have been reports some from the Miami Herald, BuzzFeed News has sent some people down and they're talking to some of these searchers and they're using dogs to go through these areas who to send out the dead bodies because there's so much they can't go in and find them. There have been people who were who were talked to some local Jacksonville reporters who when interviewed said that they they saw they knew right off the bat just around them that 50 people were dead and there there was no one left on their part of the island and they knew that thousands of people were probably dead and that's the that's the scary part about this they are actively they actively believe that the death toll is going to be much higher than that 50 so continue praying for them i know people i know there are churches and everything sending supplies and there's organizations organizing taking money they're going to need it because they're going to have to rebuild and rebuilding is going to take some time. And where that brings us with the U.S. is that the U.S. needs to get more involved here than it is right now. Initially, they talked about easing immigration restrictions to allow some people to come over, and that certainly needs to happen too. But the big thing that the United States is going to have to do is to step in with funds, and I think it's going to be, have to be on the size of something like the Marshall Plan that you saw after World War II when we stepped in to help rebuild Europe in the aftermath of, of the war where every all these cities were leveled. And the reason that we did that in the Marshall Plan wasn't just to rebuild them. That obviously needed to happen. But the reason that we did that is because we had gone, come out of World War II and then immediately entered the Cold War, and we saw ourselves locked in this battle against the Soviets and communism. And we knew that if we didn't step in in some of these European nations, if we didn't, the Soviets would, and they would rebuild all these different places, and the people would fall under the control, and, have, and the Soviets would put in all these different puppet governments, and we would lose this foothold on the European continent, and that would be bad for our national security. So that's the overall thing with the Marshall Plan. You go in and you help these things to prevent your enemies coming in and getting a toehold in a place where you have interests. 
Well, our interest in the Bahamas is, first off, it's just off our coast. It's literally about 50-some-odd miles off the coast of Florida. It's about a 45-minute plane ride if you're flying out of Miami. And so it's literally on our doorstep. And if we don't step in to do this, we know China will. They have many, many, many of their companies who have gone in to build the infrastructure in in the Bahamas, specifically Huawei. There was a report out of Axios that the U.S. has already started working with Bahamian officials to help them navigate the bureaucracy of the U.S. government to pursue avenues of assistance. But the reason that they're already talking about this is that administration sources say it's too soon for detailed conversations on how China is going to interplay with this. You know, we've got the trade war with China, and we're locked in a bunch of different competitive situations with China across the globe. And but the key thing is that the Trump administration does understand that the Bahamas represent a specific national security concern. The Chinese president. Uh, Xi Jinping has what's known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And what he does is it intertwines China with countries throughout Asia, Europe, and Africa. And what they do is China comes in and invests in ports, railways, power grids, gas pipelines, oil pipelines, and any other massive infrastructure project that these countries need in order for them to run better. China's great at building all of these things. And what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years is China's gone into these countries and built, and the U.S. has come in and put in trade deals in order to get all these countries to obey the U.S.'s trade policy, which is great because a lot of these countries end up being rich on the backside. But they're also indebted to China at the same time. So you're seeing sort of these two versions of the Marshall Plan. There's the Chinese version and the American version. And what the China, well, the reason we don't want the Chinese to come in and rebuild all this infrastructure in, China, in, in the Bahamas is that it would give them a potential just spying point on the U.S. If you're that close, you have all this proximity. It's sort of like how... During the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the reasons that was a crisis is because the Soviets were trying to build a beachfront right there in Cuba and put nuclear missiles there. China's not going to do that, but they are going to have technology there in the Bahamas that allow them to spy more effectively on United States citizens and just have a toehold in our backyard just off the coast of Florida. So we need to make sure that we go in and that we help rebuild the Bahamas, not just because it's a good humanitarian effort, but also because it represents a distinct national security concern to the United States. And I'm hoping the Trump administration will step up their game and do more to help the Bahamas, um, helping them out with the immigration process, rebuilding. We really need to help them rebuild and clean up and ensure that China doesn't have this toehold on U.S. near or at least close to U.S. soil. Last topic for today is Brexit. I wanted to get this in because it just I keep getting questions about what's happening with Brexit, what's happening, how do I should understand Brexit, what's happening in the United Kingdom. So I'm going to try to do a 
quick explainer going through what's happened. So, broad picture, Brexit is the United Kingdom's vote, where they voted in a public referendum, which means they gave it as to a vote to the people of whether or not they should remain in the European Union or they should leave. So the European Union is a big conglomeration of all the European countries. It sets all the trade rules, it overrides on a lot of local laws, and it allows the free flow of people, goods, and everything throughout all these countries. So if you're in one of these EU countries, you can pretty much freely go back and forth to any of them because they're all European Union states and they all recognize each other, and you can also freely trade between them. So that's just a quick and dirty version of that. There are some sovereignty issues there where European Union law will override individual country laws, and that's caused some of the flare points in the United Kingdom vote. So anyway, three years ago, the United Kingdom voted, just before the U.S. elections, to leave the European Union. And since then, basically nothing has happened. They've held a lot of votes, they've gone through two prime ministers now, and they have not left. So what, as they've kicked this can and kept getting extensions from the European Union of trying to figure out how to negotiate this, they've come up now to their latest deadline. They, the last time they negotiated a, a, uh, an extension, it was for October 31st, and if they had not negotiated a deal by October 31st, 2019, they would leave the Union, the European Union with no deal, which meant that everything would just revert to the European Union, to the UK, existing outside of the EU with no trade deals and no, and, and no deals in between them. So it would all be cut off all at once. So there's some worry about how to deal with that naturally, which is why they've been trying to negotiate all these deals so that they can avoid some of those problems. So if you're with me now, so far that should make some sense. So they've been trying to negotiate with the EU on how they're going to exit. Well, over the course of these three years, Prime Minister Theresa May was the one who bore the brunt of this. She negotiated deal after deal after deal, and then she would bring it to Parliament and Parliament voted every last single bill down. So every, every, every way you could think of leaving the European Union, from no deal at all, to light versions of no deal, to full-on full on deals, trade deals and everything with the European Union, with everything set out, she laid everything out before Parliament, and they voted down each and every one of those deals. So, after, being, after losing all of these votes, she effectively became a lame duck. She can't do anything. And so, the way that it works in the UK, if you want an election, the Prime Minister is the one who declares that there's going to be an election. They can hold what's called a snap election. Now, in times past, they could pretty much declare that whenever they wanted, because their party controlled Parliament, and so they can, if they wanted an election, they could declare it when they wanted to. They could not declare it if they didn't want to is really up to them. Well, what's happened here is David Cameron passed an act that said that you can only get an election if you get two-thirds consent in Parliament. That was a big mistake. It was meant to rope in the minority party to ensure that everyone had buy-in of when elections happened. 
that's not what's happened here. Because what's happened is no one wants Brexit. Or let me put it this way. No one wants a Brexit deal that's been presented to them so far, and that includes every form of them. But what they also don't want is a election. So what Boris Johnson, the new prime minister, has done is he said, we're going to leave the European Union with no deal on October 31st. And if you don't like that, we can hold an election and we'll force it. So if you don't want to go out and just end Brexit, then we can vote for new people and they can handle the negotiations and we'll just let them do that. Now this makes a lot of sense to a lot of British people because they are very, very, very tired of fighting over Brexit and seeing no action on it for three solid years. The problem is that the Labour Party, the minority party in this case, is led by Jeremy Corbyn, who is a rabid anti-Semite. He's been caught with pictures with every form of anti-Jewish, anti-Semite, terrorist group against the state of Israel that you can practically find. There have been many people who have quit the Labour Party, and even the people who remain within the Labour Party do not want him to be prime minister. So there are people on both sides of the aisle who don't want to hold these elections because they're scared that he will become prime minister. Boris Johnson realizes this and says, well, that's why I want to hold it, because if you have all this fear, you should vote for me or vote for my party. That way we can get enough votes to end Brexit. And it's just a big mess. They're probably going to end up holding an election, and I hope they're able to accomplish Brexit through that. The other big thing that's happened here is that because um, Leave and Remain were not really a party line vote. There are people across both parties who voted both ways in it. What that's meant is that since Parliament now faces the prospect that they have to deal with it now and that Boris is forcing them to deal with it now, some of the conservatives who don't want to leave the European Union are using this as their chance to break away from their party and trying to say, hey, we're supporting democracy. But if you're going to not support the a referendum where everyone voted, and decided which way they're going to go, you can't really say that you're supporting democracy. And I have a column coming out on Monday that's going to talk through some of the weirdness in this argument where you say, we support democracy, but we're also not going to acknowledge a democratic election that decided this issue for us. That's the real catch with this whole Brexit debate. It's people saying, we're not, we're, we gave the people a say, and we're going to ignore it. Boris is holding this election to basically try to kick all of those conservatives out and replace them with pro-Brexit members of parliament so that he can accomplish some form of Brexit, whether no deal or some kind of deal. Either way, he wants to make sure it ends by October 31st to get in the good graces of the people because they're sick of it, and frankly, everyone's sick of it. So that's kind of what's happening in a nutshell with Brexit. It's, they've had this time to deal with it, they haven't dealt with it, those who want to stay in the EU are trying to delay, and so they don't care anything about this October 31st deadline, they're trying to delay as long as possible, because what they want to do is they want to override the referendum result, and that's not some conspiracy theory, there was a report in The Telegraph that pinpointed several remaining members of parliament 
who plan to revoke Article 50, that's the article that you trigger in the European Union that allows you to leave it, they're going to pursue legislation in Parliament to reverse that. So there will be no way for the United Kingdom to leave at all. So you end up just basically saying, well, we had that vote, but it doesn't matter, and we're going to ignore it, and Parliament has decided. So if you're going to hold these referendums and not uphold them, it doesn't say much about your belief in democracy at all. Now, that's fine in places like the United States, where we have all these checks against democracy and just every form of government that you can imagine, from monarchical with all our checks on the presidency through democracy with all our checks or all our Republican checks on just a majoritarian institution of democracy. So we have institutions to deal with that. In the United Kingdom, they have what's called an unwritten constitution. They depend a lot on norms and values. Well, what they've learned is that if you start burning all of those, there's really no norm that can hold anybody back. And so as they're just kind of ignoring the will of the people in this case, they're ignoring all these different norms. They're ignoring their unwritten constitution. And so they're in uncharted territory. So Brexit is a mess. We'll find out more if they're probably going to have an election at some point. The question is just when. If they can get Boris Johnson wants it to happen before uh, before they have the Brexit in October 31st. Uh, some people in Labor want it to be held afterwards. There's a whole lot of debate and fight over when it'll happen. I think they'll end up having it, though, just because it's going to be hard to deny the fact that if you're going to try to avoid the will of people, you should have a vote on it at this point and have, if people want to remain in, they should have those types of politicians in Parliament to accomplish that very fact. So that'll do it for this show. That's all I have today. Questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at dvonci. Look for my next column to come out on Monday. I'm covering part of this Brexit thing that we talked about today at the Conservative Institute. And make sure to sign up for the newsletter. You'll get all my columns and other writing in your inbox at the end of each week on Friday morning. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. If you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out in the rankings. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.